Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Yoav Alon. Yoav is a professor in Middle Eastern history at Tel Aviv University. He's the author of the wonderful The Making of Jordan, Tribes, Colonialism, and the Modern State. And he's also the author of a more recent book, The Shake of Shakes, uh, a book that looks at the, the formation of, of Jordan and focuses on the role of tribes in that formative period. Yoav, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really pleased that we could make this happen. Thank you for hosting me. It's an absolute pleasure. Yoav, I normally start this discussion by by reflecting on what prompted a particular interest in a particular topic. So can you tell us a bit about why you got interested in, in Jordan and the tribal aspects of, of Jordan, please? Uh, yeah, that goes back to my early days in, at the university. I was fortunate to uh, have met um, one of my professors who became my mentor. Um, his name is uh, Joseph Kostiner. Unfortunately, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. And he was an expert on tribal societies in the Middle East, and he actually fired my enthusiasm with this topic. Amazing. Um, um, and Jordan in particular, the reason was that uh, when I did my uh, graduate studies uh, back at Tel Aviv University, Jordan and Israel ha- ha- have just uh, signed the peace treaty. Right. And I knew I'll be able to go to Jordan and conduct research there. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go uh, to, uh, to, 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 to study a country uh, where I can conduct research. Um, uh, you know, for Israelis, uh, many countries in the Middle East are closed. And Jordan was a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you always know that that academia was the path that you wanted to take? Uh, not at all. Uh, in fact, <laughs> in fact, I tried to uh, not to avoid it, but certainly not to make a career out of it. Right. Uh, I wanted to. I thought that academia is not practical enough. Uh, at some point, I wanted to become a diplomat. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm very happy not to have taken that path. <laughs> um, and you know, sometimes life just takes you there, and which it did. Yeah, well, I can certainly sympathise with with life taking me to where I am today. <laughs> you are. I'm, I'm very jealous that you got to work with uh, Joseph Costner. He's someone whose work I've I've long admired. Can you tell us a bit about about what he was like and about his work for those who who haven't had the the pleasure of reading his work, please? Yeah, um, Joseph Costner was a very unique uh, professor. He always went against the stream, and in many ways he was a pioneer in what he did. Uh, I think we can say that he was the doyen of tribal studies in the <laughs> Middle East, and um, in a way he he carved uh, into himself a new way. Um, uh, he became interested in the topic when he did his PhD at London University with Professor Eli Kaduri. He wrote about the formation of the Saudi state. Yeah. Uh, Eli Kadoui uh, didn't know much about tribes or didn't care much about tribes, but he was he was open enough uh, to allow Kostiner to uh, to pursue that study, um, and and that was a wonderful uh, decision. Uh, so Kostiner wrote his PhD and then his first book about the formation of the Saudi state, and became an expert on on tribal societies in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and, and he did it at a time when uh, scholars didn't think 
there was much about tribes. Or they didn't think that tribes were a topic, uh, an interesting topic of inquiry. Uh, tribes were seen as relics of the past. They were seen as something not modern, maybe anti-modern, yeah. something that is due to disappear very soon. So why to bother and why to study them? Uh, Kostina, I think, understood that tribes are important actors, um, they are important building blocks of many Arab societies, and they have a role in the modern period. And um, I mean, today it's, it sounds pretty obvious uh, yeah. when you see what's going on in the Middle East. But back in the, the 80s, um, he went through difficulties in persuading his colleagues. Many of them told him, you know, you're not really a historian, you are a social scientist. Right. Uh, go yeah. and teach at the Faculty of uh, Social Sciences. Uh, Sciences. Um, but he persevered, and, and I'm sure uh, it's, it's pity that he died prematurely and he couldn't see his success. Yeah, I mean, he's got such a such a huge influence on a lot of people, I guess. Most obviously, you, of course, but uh, but also many others across history and the the social sciences, and and I think anthropology as well. But I agree, I agree. and and people continue to cite him, and people continue to uh, remember him very very fondly. He was a wonderful person, very very funny, a wonderful sense of humor. I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but but that doesn't surprise me. Uh, Yoav. Oh, <laughs> Before we, we delve deeper into your work, perhaps it's it's pertinent to maybe just dwell a little bit on on the concept of the tribe and and why it's important. I mean, as you were saying, it's it's pretty evident right now why the tribe is important. But perhaps you can just just flesh out what we understand by by the tribe when we're using the term, please, and why you think it it resonates to this day. Okay, so tribes, uh, when I talk about tribes, I'm not talking about uh, ethnic divisions. I'm not talking about the Shiites and Sunnites and the Kurds in Iraq, for instance. I'm talking about um, mainly Arab tribes, although you can find Persian and Turkish and Kurdish tribes. Um, uh, You will find them all across the Middle East and North Africa. Um, They are people who define themselves in terms of blood, and kinship. Uh, when I when I asked when I went to Jordan and asked people what did it mean to be a member of the, a tribe, so people told me we have the same uh, ancestor, the same blood runs uh, in our veins. So it's the idiom of family and blood that yeah. compose this uh, identity of, of being of tribal membership. So a tribe is a is a is a is a framework framework of identity. And it's also an organization, a social and political organization. And, and you can see tribes influential in many, many countries in the region. You talk about it being a sort of a form of social organization. How does that, that regulatory dimension take place? How is it sort of a, a body that is amorphous yet grounded in blood and norms? How does it regulate itself? Um, uh, that's a good question. It's, of course, it changes all, uh, a long time. Uh, in the past, tribes were mainly small and intimate communities. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, people tended to marry within the tribe. People tended to uh, conduct their seasonal grazing and seasonal migrations uh, with the tribe. They lived next to each other. Um, uh, by the way, I want to I want to emphasize that that when I talk about tribes, I, I don't talk only about Bedouins. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, sure. Vibes can be seen not only in the desert, but also in the villages and even in the big cities. Mm. Um, um, and, in, and indeed, in the modern period, many tribes people moved into the cities, but continued to uh, remember the past, the uh, ancestors, and and to conduct social relations uh, pretty much similar to the one uh, in in the past, uh, including um, marrying within the tribe, um, respecting tribal customary law, and uh, when they go to uh, vote in elections, oftentimes they would vote to the tribal member. Right. There's the the assumption that there's a tension or occasional tensions, perhaps, between tribal groups and and the state. Is that a fair assumption? Would you say, or is that a a, a set of tensions that is a consequence of particular times and spaces and particular political contexts? No, I think you're right. I think that there is an an inherent tension between the tribe and the state. Both organizations. Uh, demand uh, loyalty, and so you've got a competition. Um, both organizations are political organizations, but also with the tension comes a lot of cooperation. Uh, in in many countries, the states actually upheld the status of tribes and made them sometimes even stronger, made the leaders influential and integrated them in the uh, apparatus. So we, we can talk about coexistence, tension, competition, uh, but we can't talk about either or as scholars understood tribalism and state in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, the assumption was that the creation of the new state in the Middle East would bring uh, the end of tribalism. That, of course, didn't happen. Sure. Well, thank you for that. I think that's, that's useful sort of contextual information for, for your work and for, for people working on tribes and the region more broadly. But, but let's go to, to your scholarship on Jordan. So it's, it's got to a point where you're able to go and do some field work in Jordan as, as part of your PhD, I assume? Yes, and that's correct. What was the PhD on? What were you looking at in particular? So in, in my PhD, I tried to look at the state formation process in Jordan, something that uh, I learned from uh, Joseph Kostiner. And I want to see how... Uh, the Jordan state was built uh, in a tribal society, 95% even more of Jordanian populations back in the times of the British Mandate were made of tribes. Some of them were nomadic tribes, some semi-nomadic, and some were villagers, peasants, who were divided along tribal lines of kinship and, and organization and identity. Um, so the idea was to see um, how Jordan was formed uh, how, uh, what happened in its formative uh, period, uh, and how tribes were so successfully integrated within the Jordanian uh, modern state. Right. So, can you say a little bit about that process then? I mean, was there was there an assumption that the tribes were happy to go along with the the state building process? Was there pushback? What was the role of the British in all of this? Just, can you just elaborate a little bit on the on the project more broadly? I guess. Yeah. So, so in Jordan, Jordan was actually established as a tribal state. In a way, Jordan was established as an extension of the 
um, tribal coalition of the Arab revolt led by the Hashemite family in Mecca during the time of the First World War with the support of the British government. When Abdallah uh, Ibn Hussein, the uh, creator, the, the founder of Jordan, arrived in the country, the first thing he did was to establish contacts with the tribal leaders. In a way, he formed a tribal coalition or an alliance, exactly as was the, uh, the tribal alliance during the, uh, during the Hashemite uh, Arab revolt. Um, uh, he, he understood the society, he, it, he knew its norms and its way of politics, and he was, he was able to uh, cultivate the uh, loyalty, uh, or at least the cooperation of many tribal leaders and their sheikhs. The British... Uh, at the beginning, was big, were a bit, a bit skeptical, but as time went on, they understood the value of Abdallah and his tribal politics, and in many ways supported it. Um, and I think the, the the crowning success of the of the British uh, in that pro project was our religion. Right. Okay. And here I would like to emphasize the role of uh, John Glab. As he and or as he was known in Jordan as, as Glab Pasha or Glab Basha huh. in Arabic, uh, who formed uh, the Desert Patrol within the Arab Legion in 1930 in order to stop tribal raiding along the Jordanian Transjordanian Saudi border. And Glab was very successful. He was an expert in tribal politics. He earned his expertise already in Iraq in the 20s. And when he came to Jordan, he was a real expert. He knew Arabic very well. Uh, he knew the material. He knew the norms. He knew the customary law. And he was able to recruit many tri tribal members into his new force. And then they became the backbone of the um, Arab Legion. Right. Okay. So, so in a way, so in a way, the British. The British officials, maybe unlike in other countries in the Middle East or, or in, along the or around the empire, the British officials uh, understood Jordan. Uh, they understood understood the society and knew how to respect its values and norms in order to uh, make the control more efficient and more cheap. Right. Okay. That that's really interesting to to hear, and it's it's at odds with with British policy at that time in, in a range of other Middle Eastern states and other global um, states where Britain was a sort of a, a leading power or colonizing force, if you will. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. And, and, you know, in Jordan, there was never an anti-colonial revolt against the British. Uh, it's, uh, Jordan is very unique uh, in that perspective, partly because the British try not to be too in intrusive. They really allowed much local autonomy both to Abdallah and the tribes. Why do you think that was when you compare and contrast it with the British and, and perhaps the French experiences in, in neighbouring states? I think that's partly to do with the fact that Jordan was not that important for right. the British. I mean, it had a strategic importance because of its location between Palestine and, and Iraq and, and the Arabian Peninsula. But, you know, Jordan uh, was uh, not a place that the British could um, take advantage of or, or there were no, there was no, there's still no oil or other natural resources. Um, so in Jordan, they mainly tried to maintain peace and quiet. Um, so that's one one explanation. Another thing is that Jordan was 
pretty homogeneous in terms of the population. You don't have uh, the division between Shiites and, 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 and Sunnites like in many other countries. Uh, in Jordan, you didn't have a large urban population, which oftentimes tend to be the backbone of the anti-colonial regi- uh, movements. Yeah. The largest city, uh, actually the town, uh, when Jordan was established in 921, was the city of Salt, with barely 10,000 people. Wow, okay. Uh, nothing in comparison to Cairo or Baghdad or Damascus. Yeah, of uh, course. And, and, and lastly, I think, um, again, it goes back to the understanding of the British officials, uh, uh, the understanding of the country. Glab served 26 years in Jordan. Uh, his predecessor, his predecessor as the commander of the Arab Legion, served in Jordan uh, nearly 20 years. Um, other British officials served there for a long time, and they really grew to understand the country. Unlike in other countries where, where uh, uh, officials rotate pretty uh, uh, swiftly. Sure. Can I ask? How did uh, Abdullah manage to unite these tribes? Because we've we've seen efforts to. Uh, to unite tribal groups in the past that haven't always worked, as as Joseph um, Costner has has documented, alongside the successful efforts. So, what was what was Abdullah's uh, modus operandi? Uh, so Abdullah was very good in in cultivating tribal uh, the, the cultivating the tribal leaderships. He um, he gave special attention to the big sheikhs, uh, gave them um, uh, prerogatives. Uh, acted as go between them and and the British, um, and and during the 30s, tribal society in Jordan, especially nomadic society in Jordan, went through a terrible crisis uh, uh, that was to do with climatic change, uh, years of droughts, um, attacks by the Ikhwan from Saudi Arabia. Um, the world economic crisis, which affected the prices of camels and few other reasons. And during that time, the Jordanian tribes needed the state's help. And here, both Abdallah and Glab could, could intervene and help and, and, and create a, an interest to the tribes to collaborate with the state. Right, okay. That's, it's absolutely fascinating. Really, really interesting set of, of localized contexts and, and local relationships that are able to help shape particular events in particular ways unique to that particular time and space really really interesting you I, I must ask this and and I, I hope you don't mind but but what were your recollections of of um, going to study in Jordan and being uh, being an Israeli studying in Jordan so close to the the opening up of relations well, that was a, a, an incredible experience. Um, I can imagine. I went to Jordan for the first time in March of 1998. Um, and I really, I think, enjoyed a window of opportunity. Uh, it was still the times of the uh, peace process. Uh, somehow, Jordanians were pretty optimistic that a deal is going to be struck by, between the Israelis and the, and the Palestinians. I was more optimis- uh, pessimistic, right. but I, I could take advantage of the um, uh, optimism. Um, I every everywhere I went, I was welcomed, uh, which is partly to do with the Jordanian culture of hospitality. Sure, yeah. Uh, but also um, uh, an attitude that 
examines every person um, as an individual rather than as a representative of a state or of a government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I think I was quite an attraction. Uh, Jordanians did not see Israelis before. I mean, the only Israeli they saw was probably uh, an Israeli uh, soldier beating um, uh, a Palestinian uh, demonstrator in the West Bank uh, or, uh, through the TV screens. Right. And for them to see or to meet an Israeli uh, was a big thing. Um, I remember when I st- first started, I was working at the Jordanian National Archives. In the first two weeks, I hardly worked. Um, people asked to talk to me. <laughs> people offered me coffee and tea. Right. And we had long chats. And uh, fortunately enough, I went along with that. Yeah, and two weeks afterwards, they kind of got used to me and I could go back to work. Right, so two weeks of disturbance and then back to it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> but, then, but then they were so helpful and friendly. Um, I think everything I asked for, I, I got. I got wonderful access and wonderful cooperation. And, um, and it was wonderful. I, it, it was very rare that people refused to talk to me or to see me. And even if they did in the few, things, a few times it happened, um, they... They did it in a very polite and indirect manner. Sure. I, I understood that I was not welcome and I went. Okay. But it was very well. Okay. Can you tell us a bit about the, the methodology then? How do you go about getting the data for this type of research? It's, it's not as if you can go and interview the, the main characters in the, in the plot. That's true. I, I'm a historian and I work with text mainly. Uh, so m- most of my material comes from the archives. Uh, I worked at the, the British National Archives. I worked at British uh, private papers collections like the one in, in Oxford, St. Anthony's. Um, I found a lot of material in the Israeli archives. Um, the Israeli State Archive, the uh, Central Zionist Archive in Jerusalem, even the Haganah Archives, uh, because there was a lot of interest uh, yeah, among the Jewish um, uh, Jewish agency yeah. and other organization uh, in Jordan. Jordan was seen as part of the Promised Land, as part of the national home. Uh, so there were a lot, of, and there were a lot of connections between Zionist officials and and Transjordanians, and especially sheikhs and other landowners. Um, in Jordan, I found uh, material at the National Archives and at the libraries and, I di- and, and, and other collections. And I also did conduct a bit of oral histories, mainly with um, sons or grandsons of, of tribal sheikhs uh, or local historians. Um, I did more of it when I worked on my second book about uh, the sheikh. Um, uh, so I combined oral history with, with uh, written records. Well, that's a, a wonderful segue into, into the next topic. And I'm conscious we've taken up a lot of time, but I hope we can, uh, we can touch on the, the second book, The Sheikh of Sheikhs, which looks at uh, the, the role and influence of Mithkal Al-Fayez, who, who played a really prominent role in, the, well, in Jordanian politics, I guess. So can you tell us a bit about about that book? What were you trying to do with it and, and why, please? Yeah, um, I, I've come across uh, Ms. Galil Faiz, uh, chef of one of the big uh, tribal confederacy in Jordan in the 
so from the 20s until his death in 1967, long, long period, uh, I, I, I encountered his name while I was searching, uh, I was researching the uh, Central Zionist archives in Jerusalem. I found f um, several files about him because he conducted negotiations with the Jewish agency in the, in the early 30s. He was the largest landowner in Jordan. And the Zionists were looking for a project in Jordan. They tried to either lease land or, or purchase land because they feared that the British might prevent them doing so in Palestine after the 1929 uh, Wailing Walls uh, riots right. uh, in, in Jerusalem and in other parts. Uh, and uh, Miskalifiers was pretty eager to uh, sell or lease part of his land, or, or at least to conduct negotiations with, uh, with the Zionists. Um, and and I, I've noticed that uh, in the literature he was barely mentioned, and, he, and if he was mentioned, it was only in passing. Uh, so I, I developed an interest in him and his life and he, in his tribe, and um, um, and he he does feature in my first book, uh, but at some point I decided that he deserves his own biography, okay. um, and uh, actually there are no biographies about tribal leaders in the Middle East. I think the one I wrote was the first. And it's pity because tribal leaders were really prominent leaders everywhere. And um, uh, large segments of the population saw them as uh, their immediate leaders and they played important roles in many, many countries. Uh, the problem was uh, for scholars, uh, the, the, the problem for scholars was that uh, most of those leaders did not read and write. Ms. Cull himself uh, could, ne could never read and write. When he was in his 50s, he learned how to, uh, how to write his name as a signature. Wow. But that's it. Okay. <laughs> um, um, but uh, with Mithkal, I could, could, I could write a biography because he drew so much interest from many, many elements, forces, government, visitors, uh, the Jordanian government, the British, um, the Zionist, of course, uh, the Palestinian media, Palestinian, lead, Palestinian leaders, um, um, many travelers who came and uh, visited him and then wrote about him and his family. So I could, I had a plethora of, of information about him, which allowed, and also a bit of oral history, yeah. uh, and, and I also was in touch with his family, so I could somehow portray his life and use him, I think, as an example uh, for other tribal leaders in the Middle East. And what's the overwhelming picture that you get from all of these different sources of, of Mithkal himself? Uh, uh, the, the, uh, he was, he was a, a remarkable leader. Uh, he was very powerful, and he knew how to navigate the many political and economic storms uh, of the Middle East in the 20th century. Uh, he was... Um, uh, he, he, he thought strategically, he understood what's going on, he was able to play off several forces against each other, for instance, uh, the Zionist movement and the Palestinian national movement, in order to uh, gain gains, uh, in order to increase his leverage vis-a-vis -vis Abdallah and the Jordanian state at large. Uh, he managed to keep his autonomy, something which was expected of a tribal leader. Uh, he was a very rich man. 
uh, as I mentioned, he was the largest uh, landowner in, in Jordan and he had many, many businesses. Um, uh, and he managed to bequeath his position to his uh, son, sons and, and grandsons. Uh, his family is still very prominent in Jordan until today. I was, I was just going to ask about the, the family legacy in Jordan. What role do the tribal figures such as, well, I guess the descendants of Mithkal play in the, in the modern Jordanian state? They are a very prominent figure. Um, Mithkal's uh, son was very close to King Hussein, uh, and he also helped him to uh, thwart a plot against him in the army in 1957. Afterwards, uh, the king appointed him as a minister for many, many years. He was also the chairperson of uh, the parliament and a member of the senate. He died in 1998. Um, his uh, son, Faisal al is now the president of the Senate, the upper house. Uh, before that, he was the head of the royal court, the prime minister, uh, the, the, the speaker of the lower house. Um, the Fires uh, is a very well-known and very prominent, very influential family until uh, until this day. Fantastic. Yoav, it's absolutely wonderful to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned so much. So thank you so much for, for giving us your time today. And I look forward to, to reading the next book about another prominent tribal figure and, and that doubling the number of books about tribal leaders in the Middle East. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for your time again, Yoav. It's been an absolute pleasure. And until next time, thank you for listening.